welcome to a new focus for the Morrison's Tours Go Southampton podcast. Now in these episodes, I'm going to be exploring not just the history of Southampton, but also the wider context of Hampshire through the ages. If you live locally, I'll be continuing the story of our shared local history, and I'll be sharing some of the most fascinating stories from those that came before us, and the way that their lives, actions, and the events of their time shaped the county to be the way it is today. Now, lots of the places you're going to hear about are places that you can visit or places that you may well have been to without really being aware of the history and the stories that they hold. In this episode, I'll be sharing the story and significance of four key events of the English Civil War, which took place in Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. Join me, Mr Morrison, on a journey to discover your local heritage, the history that surrounds you every single day, and a story that connects us all. To set the scene, we're travelling back to the 17th century, 1642 to be precise, less than 40 years after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth had been succeeded by her cousin James VI of Scotland, who in turn became James I of England, herald in the beginning of the Stuart period. James in turn was succeeded by his son Charles I in 1625. Now, like his father, Charles believed in the divine right of kings, believing that the king had been chosen by God to rule. Crucially, it also advocated the idea that as the monarch had been chosen to rule by divine authority, they shouldn't be held accountable by any earthly authority, such as parliament. This had made parliament very suspicious of the king. Parliament at the time didn't have a great say in ruling the country, they were only really summoned as a temporary advisory body to the king, as and when the king saw fit. And that was usually to help the king or the monarch at that time to raise money through taxes. Over the previous centuries, however, Parliament had gained enough power that it couldn't simply be ignored. Even so, between 1629 and 1640, King Charles did exactly that. This period was known as the personal rule of Charles I. Charles sought Parliament's aid in spreading his high Anglican beliefs across England and into Scotland. These were religious beliefs that were quite similar to Catholicism. It wasn't supported by Parliament. In return, Charles dismissed Parliament for the next 11 years. He saw their refusal to support him as not only an infringement 
on his divine right, but really a slap in the face to this. Charles was known as quite an extravagant individual who spent quite a lot of England's money quite lavishly. As a result, he was often very short on money. Coupled with this, many Puritans in what was then a Protestant country in England were outraged by Charles' marriage to the Catholic Henrietta Maria of France, as well as his support for his friend William Lord, who he'd appointed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Lord had put in place a lot of reforms to the English church, which many people saw as a swing back toward Catholicism. By October of 1640, Charles's unsuccessful attempts to extend his power in Scotland and his unpopular religious policies had led to a war with the Scots. Now, realising that he lacked both the money and manpower for a full-scale war, Charles took this opportunity to re-summon Parliament after its 11-year absence. In May 1641, Charles even went as far as to introduce an extraordinary act, which forbade any future dissolution, dissolution sorry, of the English Parliament without Parliament's consent. And this gave Parliament far greater power than it had previously, and as such, Parliament set about abolishing several of the unpopular taxes and courts that Charles had established during his personal rule. Eventually, increasing demands for more power by Parliament just became too much for Charles, and it led to him barging into the House of Commons and trying to arrest five Ministers of Parliament. This completely lost him any remaining support within Parliament that he had, and the battle lines for the English Civil War were drawn. On the one hand, you had those who supported Parliament, known as the Roundheads, among whom, um, among whose ranks were Oliver Cromwell as one of the commanders of the Roundhead force. And on the other hand, you had those who supported the king, the Cavaliers. One of the earliest actions of the Civil War in Hampshire was the Siege of Portsmouth in 1642. The year that the Civil War broke out had seen a split of support from those in Portsmouth. Most people, the mayor included, were parliamentarian supporters. However, Colonel Goring the town's military governor, held command of the town's soldiers, and it was he who decided the town's allegiance. Now, an account given by Sir John Oglander, a diarist and politician who sat in the House of Lords between 1625 and 1629, survives today, and it provides quite a colourful description of Goring's character. Oglander accounts a story of one time that Goring, together with Lord Portland and his brother Nicholas, came to Portsmouth. And in Oglander's words, the three of them drank and shot and shot and drank till they were scarce compus mentis. In layman's terms, drunk as a skunk. They then apparently travelled across to the Isle of Wight, where they continued shooting and drinking. And Oglander's really specific next. He says that the gunpowder that was shot in the space of eight days was worth more than £300. Now, I, I can't find a reliable calculator for how much this was worth in today's money, but a conservative estimate would be that that would be over £70,000 of gunpowder. And it was this man, 
that the future of Portsmouth was entrusted to. Goring was very much torn between the roundhead and cavalier sides of the conflict. He was a favourite of the king's wife, Queen Henrietta Maria, and he'd even gone as far as to guarantee her safe passage through Portsmouth should she ever need it. Goring's understanding was, following this, that he'd be given the rank of Lieutenant General. However, this didn't happen. After this plan fell through, Goring informed the House of Lords of the Queen's plotting and even managed to retain the support of Parliament. Goring also appealed for financial aid to improve the town's defences. And on hearing this, Parliament promised £3,000 to Goring for this exact purpose. However, Goring had also remained in contact with the King throughout early 1642, assuring the King that he'd have Goring's full support in any eventuality of a conflict. There's even some evidence to suggest that the Queen had also sent Goring the funds he'd requested. With both sides firmly believing they had Goring's support, Goring would continue to lead both on, really, before publicly declaring his support for the king midway through 1642. By August, Portsmouth had become a highly fortified town, protected by at least 100 cannons and with a vast supply of gunpowder. On hearing of Goring's oath of allegiance to the king on the 4th of August, parliamentarian forces were very quickly mobilised and two troops of cavalry commanded by Colonels Waller and Uri, surrounded the town. The stage was set for a full-scale blockade of Portsmouth. A parliamentarian force assembled to the north of Portsea Island, and seven parliamentarian warships were dispatched to block the naval route. The aim of all this was to cut the town off and prevent any supplies reaching Portsmouth by road or by sea via the Isle of Wight or from continental Europe. Skirmishes between the royalists defending the town and the attacking parliamentarians continued for a month, with the morale in the town falling with each passing parliamentarian attack. On August 28th, William Waller, the parliamentarian commander, met with Colonel Goring to negotiate a surrender, but Goring refused. The situation developed further in September. Artillery gunners from Gosport in support of Parliament, fired upon Portsmouth from across the harbour, and Waller even successfully, successfully captured South Sea Castle. This left Portsmouth open to cannon fire from three different directions, and it eventually forced Goring's surrender on September the 5th, in exchange for his men's lives and freedom. This despite a last-minute threat from Goring to blow up the gunpowder store at the Square's Tower. A further key conflict was the Battle of Alton the following year in 1643. Taking place on December 13th, the battle would see roundheads under the command once again of the parliamentary commander Sir William Waller, and they would inflict the first decisive defeat for Sir Ralph Hopton, who was the leader of the Royalist forces in the south of England. As dawn was rising on the morning of the 13th, the Earl of Crawford, who had been a Royalist supporter, fled from Alton all the way back to Winchester, 
taking with him the cavalry that had been stationed there and leaving only the infantry soldiers to guard Alton. Under the command of Richardus Bowles, the royalist soldiers were very quickly forced to seek shelter in the church of St Lawrence to make a desperate last stand, having been outnumbered and simply overpowered by parliamentarian soldiers. The royalist soldiers were able to hold their position for over two hours, firing from the windows and a scaffolding that had been placed inside the church. After this heroic last stand, in which Bowles is said to have killed several enemies before falling himself, the vast majority of royalist defenders were slaughtered. The battle itself can be described as one of the most savage encounters of the entire civil war. And to this day, musket shot holes can still be seen on the walls and door of the church, serving as a silent witness and memorial to the bravery of the fallen. Waller's forces were able to kill over 100 royalist soldiers and take over 500 prisoner, a loss of almost half of all Hopton's royalist infantry forces in the south. There are several records to show that Hopton actually became severely depressed following the battle, particularly due to the loss of so many of his men. For me, this is one of those really relatable and personal stories that both bring history to life and allow us as learners to add colour to the lives of people whose names can all too often become simply letters on a page or screen. The next engagement I'd like to focus on to explore Hampshire's role in the Civil War is the Siege of Basing House between 1642 and 1645. The ruins of Basing House are still located in the village of Old Basing, east of Basingstoke, and are somewhere that you can visit when Covid restrictions are lifted. The house was also the subject of an archaeological investigation by Time Team, which is readily available to view on YouTube, and I highly recommend you go and have a look at that. Basing House was intermittently under attack between 1642 and eventually up to the 14th of October 1645, when it was finally stormed by Oliver Cromwell's men. The initial assault in 1642 was led by Colonel Richard Norton, before being renewed by, here we see him again, William Waller, in 1643, and eventually, as I say, being destroyed by Cromwell's forces in 1645. Basing House was the residence of the 5th Marquess of Winchester, a royalist supporter, as well as some 150 royalist sympathisers who were thought to have taken refuge there. And this made the house a target for Parliament. In July of 1642, a royalist garrison was dispatched to Basing House at the request of the Marquess, and on its way it intercepted and drove off a parliamentary force commanded by Norton. Following this, the house was placed into a state of defence. The next large-scale attack on the house came in November 1643, as William Waller assembled a 2,000-strong force to attack the garrison of some 400 royalist defenders of the house. Under the cover of fog, the roundheads marched on the house on the 6th of November and opened fire. This siege continued into the afternoon until a ceasefire was called and surrender terms offered to the Marcus. The Marcus refused, intending to maintain the house in the name of the king. 
A second offer of surrender also promised safe passage out of the house for any women and children, and again this was refused. The women of the house were equally determined to fight for their beliefs and aid the soldiers where they could, doing things like casting bullets, for example. Fighting where they needed to. The following day, heavy rain caused the parliamentarians to retreat to Basingstoke as it had become impossible for the soldiers to light their fuses or the cannons. Further parliamentarian assaults came in the coming days, but also proved unsuccessful, and Waller was eventually forced to abandon his siege following more bad weather, the arrival of winter, and also the arrival of Sir Ralph Hopton on the 14th of November, who came with a release force a relief force, sorry, of some 5,000 royalist troops. On March 29th, 1644, following William Waller's victory at the Battle of Cheriton, the royalist army again took refuge at Basing House. By this point in the Civil War, royalist fortunes had taken a massive nosedive and the Marcus's own brother, Lord Edward Powlett, had conspired to hand Basing House across to Waller and the parliamentarians. Now his betrayal was discovered and his conspirators were hanged, but Powlett himself was spared. His punishment was to be appointed the hangman of the royalist garrison, and his first job was to execute his fellow conspirators. An escalation of hostilities followed that year as parliamentarian forces led by again Colonel Norton continued to besiege the house in the coming months with limited success. Now in a wider context, the Battle of Naseby was won by parliamentarian forces led by Cromwell and Sir Thomas Fairfax in June 1645. This proved to be one of the most decisive engagements of the entire civil war. The royalist force there had been all but destroyed by the Roundhead army and from late August parliamentarian forces arrived to survey the defences at Basing House and pinpoint where breaches could be made. As the weeks continued to tick by, assaults by the parliamentarians continued to cause damage to the house, notably collapsing a tower on September the 22nd. Cromwell, in the meantime, had continued to march south across England following his success at Naseby and eliminating any remaining royalist strongholds as he progressed. On the 6th of October, Winchester Castle was surrendered to and destroyed by Cromwell, leading him to set his sights on Basing House as his next target. And he arrived there two days later. A final demand for surrender was sent to the Marquis, promising no mercy should he refuse. The Marquis elected to fight. On the 14th of October, following two successful breaches of the walls that previous day, the final attack on Basing House took place. The house, defended by a garrison of 200 soldiers, faced attack from 7,000 parliamentarians, and they breached the walls within minutes. Hand-to-hand -hand combat between the rooms followed and most of the house and its occupants were looted for all of their wealthy and worldly possessions. As the royalist defence crumbled and was overwhelmed, some tried to escape over the walls but most were killed or taken prisoner and the house was burned to the ground. A final stop on this tour 
of Hampshire's involvement in the Civil War brings us to King Charles I's imprisonment in Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight in 1648. Now, in 1646, following the defeat of the Royalist army, King Charles had been imprisoned by Oliver Cromwell and placed under house arrest in the old Tudor royal apartments at Hampton Court Palace. While Cromwell's new model army were debating on how best to deal with the king, Charles decided that his most sensible course of action was to escape and flee to Titchfield Abbey in Hampshire, where he'd make contact with Colonel Robert Hammond, who was the parliamentarian commander of the Isle of Wight, and who was also thought to be a royalist sympathiser. King Charles arrived at Carisbrook Castle on the island on the 22nd of November 1647. He soon realised, however, that he'd misjudged the situation, and although he placed himself under the governor's protection, he soon became the governor's prisoner. At first, Charles was actually allowed a fair amount of freedom on the island, until a sympathetic local officer tried to raise support for the king, after which point Charles was confined to the castle. King Charles's options at this stage were very limited. He could a. Wait out his time in the castle until Parliament reached a decision on his future, likely meaning he'd lose his head, or again try to escape. Now, with the help of a smuggled message by way of his chambermaid, Charles did in fact manage to arrange an escape for the night of the 20th of March 1648. His only hurdle now was to negotiate the climb from his bedchamber window, lower himself to the courtyard below, and make successful his escape. Think Rapunzel, although, as we're about to discover, far less successful. There was a slight error of judgment in the king's plan. Just a deedy-weedy flaw that, you know, could have happened to any... The king got stuck. The king got stuck climbing out of his window. As reported later by his page, Charles was all set to make his grand escape, until his shoulders sorry, became lodged between the sides of the window, meaning he couldn't move forwards, nor could he move backwards. If at first you don't succeed was certainly Charles's mantra, and he arranged a similar escape by bribing his guards in May. This time, he was ultimately foiled by placing his trust in the wrong people, and two of the guards betrayed the king's plot. It wasn't the king's Houdini impressions that would guarantee his fate, however. While he was at Carisbrook Castle, Charles had also plotted in secret with the Scots, promising that he'd establish Presbyterianism, a popular religious belief in Scotland, in England if the Scots helped him to reclaim the throne. This led to a very brief conflict known as the Second Civil War, where Oliver Cromwell soundly defeated the Scots by August 1648 and Charles's fate was sealed. He was transported back to London, charged with high treason, and executed on the 30th of January, 1649. And so ends our whistle-stop tour through the story of Hampshire during the English Civil War. Now, I hope that the stories I've shared with you have given you some form of entertainment and helped you to better understand a period in Hampshire's history which is almost unknown to many who live in the county. 
Here's hoping you'll keep the individual stories, the experiences of those who fought and died, and the impact that the Civil War had in Hampshire and, as a result, England alive. And I'd absolutely encourage you to go and read and watch more about the things I've covered today. There's just so much more history out there and so many more stories that I can't cover, unfortunately, in just one episode. And they're all waiting to be heard. As always, thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care. Bye for now.